If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, be looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning. We took a little bit of a, a break as we considered three, three passages in Luke's gospel uh, as, as in preparation for Christmas, but now we're back into 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, picking up at verse 18. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths, and we confess that Sometimes we feel like we're in darkness when we read your word, uh, when there are parts that are difficult for us to understand. So we need the illumination of your Holy Spirit uh, to give us light, uh, to teach us, to instruct our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that today, uh, that you would give us understanding by the power of your spirit, the same spirit who inspired Peter, and that you would take these truths, make them clear, and apply them to our lives for your glory. And Father, we pray that in all things we might see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, in many ways, we might say that the Christian life is both uh, the easiest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world. Uh, on the one hand, it's easy. Uh, we believe the gospel, uh, which tells us that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. And that we receive what he has done simply by trusting, by, by turning from our sins and receiving his salvation as a gift. Uh, and that gift is permanent. It's secure. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father supplies all our needs. He strengthens us to follow Jesus in all of life. And he promises that even through death, we have a glorious future awaiting us where all sin and sorrow will be put away and we'll be with the Lord forever. That's a pretty quick summary. We've not gotten all the details, but even with that summary, there's no better news than that. Jesus has done it all and he offers salvation to us as a free gift to receive by faith. On the other hand, the Christian life can feel like the hardest thing in the world. Jesus saves us by his cross and then he calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. Uh, the cross is a symbol of, of dying, 
Uh, I say dying and not death because Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily. He models and describes what that should look like in his earthly ministry and his own dying. Uh, it looks like showing mercy to those in need. It looks like forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. It looks like love for enemies and suffering the loss of earthly goods and treasures, suffering for the sake of righteousness. righteousness. And all the while, he calls us to a wholehearted obedience to him as Lord, uh, even with other pressures and other allegiances pulling on our hearts. We know that uh, the apostle Peter lived out this tension, that he experienced that uh, in his own life, sometimes failing along the way, which I think should give us hope. He knew what it cost to follow Jesus. He knew that it was fraught with difficulty and yet at the same time, completely worth it and 100% powered by the grace of God. And so when Peter, throughout this letter, calls us to hard things like doing good and resisting evil, suffering for the sake of righteousness and saying that it's better to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. When Peter calls us to these things, he's not speaking from an ivory tower, you know, somehow uh, disconnected or unfamiliar with the reality that he is placing before these believers or unfamiliar, unfamiliar with the suffering that they themselves are experiencing. He knows it. He knows it full well as a follower of Christ. So he doesn't speak from an ivory tower disconnected from the experience of the Christian life. Nor does he call us to do these things by our own moral efforts, by some strength that we have to muster up from within ourselves as if we could possibly do that. Rather, Peter calls us to hard things and at the same time gives us spiritual encouragement and power to live faithfully while enduring hardships of all times, of all kinds, by looking to Christ, the one who gave himself for us. Or if we could put it another way, we might say this. Peter instructs us here uh, in, in his letter, in different points of the letter, to honor God in our suffering, reminding us that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And here he points us to the example of Christ and the power of Christ to enable us to do that. And so that's what I want us to look at uh, today is, is three, three major ideas in this passage that are all connected to encourage us to follow Jesus faithfully, even while we endure hardships. Peter first points us to Christ's suffering for us as a sinless substitute, which is a lot of S's and kind of hard to say. He points us to Christ's suffering for us as a sinless substitute. He points to Christ's victory over all evil. And then he reminds us of our baptism uh, as a pledge for us to live before God with a good conscience. And so let's look at those three things uh, in that order. First, Peter points us to the fact that Christ suffered for us as a sinless substitute. Look again at verse 18. After telling us that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, uh, in verse 18 he says, For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter here is summarizing the, the clear teaching of the Bible uh, from beginning to end regarding the work of Christ on the cross, what we typically call the atonement. And it's really the most important question for us to answer uh, in life. 
what did Jesus accomplish at the cross? What did he do in his dying on the cross? Well, he did a lot. But one thing that Peter focuses on here, and really the central work of the cross that Peter highlights here, uh, has to do with our sin and what we deserve for our sin. Peter highlights here three aspects of the atonement, of the work of Christ on the cross, that are fundamentally and absolutely necessary for the gospel. So three things that he highlights here. First, Peter points out that Jesus suffered for sins. Really, Jesus' whole life from the manger to the tomb can be described as a life of suffering. It, it culminates in the cruel crucifixion on Calvary, but his whole life was one of suffering. He told his followers, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, uh, wandering about, as it were, homeless, uh, without a secure place. Jesus suffered throughout his entire life, and that suffering culminated at the cross. And Peter here highlights that Jesus' suffering, especially at the cross, was for sins. It's a legal suffering. It's a penalty that Jesus is paying for sins against God. And to describe it, he borrows language from the Old Testament, which Peter does a lot of in this letter. He borrows language from the Old Testament to help us understand that Jesus gave himself as a sin offering that the work of the cross was not merely an example. It was not merely a magnanimous act of love that only had exemplary power. Jesus gave himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice to remove God's wrath for our sins. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. We'll get to the substitute part in a little bit. The point here is to highlight that Jesus takes the penalty for sin at the cross. That's what Peter means when he says that he died, he suffered once for sins as an offering for sin. Paul talks about Jesus as becoming a curse for us, cursed because he hung on the tree and as giving himself as a sin offering in the flesh. And I think it's important to point out uh, the clarity of this throughout the New Testament that uh, there's really no confusion in the minds of the writers of the New Testament as to what Jesus is accomplishing at the cross. And at the heart of what he does is to suffer wrath for sin. And any teaching about the cross that diminishes that aspect of Jesus' work is simply not biblical. It does not match what Jesus says nor what the rest of the New Testament or what the rest of the Bible says. He suffered for sins. Second, notice Jesus suffered as a substitute. He suffers for us. Uh, notice Peter says that Jesus suffers the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous in place of the unrighteous. You know, Jesus committed no sin. Uh, Peter highlights that in, in another place where he says he, he committed no sin, nor there was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus is sinless. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet had no sin. In his intentions, in his words, in his actions, Jesus is completely pure, the spotless Lamb of God. And yet, as the sinless one, he stands in our place. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus stands in our place as our representative, obeying the Father in all of his life, uh, uh, being righteous for you. And then he stands in our place as our representative, our substitute on the cross, bearing in his flesh the full weight of the wrath of God for us. Which is why Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is my body which is for you. His death is for us as a substitute. He stands in our place both as a righteous man and as a sinless substitute to carry away our sins. He is a substitute. And third, Peter highlights that Jesus rose from the dead by the Spirit as the public proof that his death was enough. This is Peter's version of Jesus' words at the cross when he says, It is finished. His death was enough. When Peter says he suffered once, he's highlighting the uniqueness, the sufficiency of the work of Jesus on the cross. There is no other work that is needed beyond the work that Jesus has done for us. And his resurrection is a public vindication of that. It's kind of like, we, we've said this before, it's kind of like if you owe a bill at a store and you go in and you, you pay the bill, they give you a receipt, and maybe uh, if it's an older store, they might have a stamp, they put it on there and it says, paid in full. The resurrection of Jesus is like God's stamp on, his, on the work of Jesus saying, the penalty for sin has been paid in full. The sinless one could not be held by death, and because he stood in our place as a substitute, not suffering for his own sins, he rises again from the dead in triumph over sin. He has accomplished salvation for us, and his resurrection publicly displays that his work is enough. Peter highlights that through this, Jesus brings us to God. He reconciles us to the Father. The sin that divided us from God has been fully dealt with, completely put away, and if you're in Jesus, it's been completely forgiven, and we are welcomed through faith as beloved children, covered with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Now, why does Peter, that's a lot, why does Peter point to that as a way of encouraging us to suffer while doing good, to do good and to resist evil, even when there's pressure for us to uh, compromise on that? I think he's doing a couple of things. First, he's reminding us that the penalty for sin has been completely removed, and therefore, our suffering is transformed. The, the things that we endure in this life, if we're in Jesus Christ, they no longer carry the weight of penalty or the weight of punishment. And, and we need to hear that because sometimes we don't believe that. So sometimes our calculus with God uh, does not factor in the grace of God at the cross. And we begin to think like this. My life, uh, if I'm good enough, then God will treat me fairly in response to being good enough. And so if I, if I try to do the right thing, uh, then my life will be good and God will do good things to me. And then, you know, you hit the reality of life, <laughs> which is like a brick wall sometimes, and it's not good, and it doesn't feel good, and you start looking at your math and thinking, okay, I've miscalculated something somewhere, and you either say, God must not be good, because he hasn't kept his part of the bargain, 
because I've done my part and he's not returning good to me. Or you look at yourself and you must say, and you say, I haven't done enough and I need to work harder. And, and then there's despair that comes with that. And in both of those calculations, we're missing the heart of the gospel. Christ for you, his righteousness for you, his cross for you. There remains nothing for you to do to be made right with God if you are in Jesus Christ. And it transforms our suffering no longer from punishment because he's mad at you. It transforms it to a pruning, to fatherly discipline, to helping you to share in his holiness by making you more like Jesus, by stripping away the things that we trust in, by exposing our sin, all the things that lie below the surface, and then we get into the pressure cooker of life and they start to come up above the surface. And if you're in Christ, they've been forgiven. They've been wiped away because Jesus has paid the penalty for them. And you can look at those sins as they come up and you can say, that's me, that's mine, but I repent. And Jesus is kind to show me my sin and to help me hate it and to repent of it and to walk in godliness. And sometimes that happens through suffering, but he transforms it. It's not punishment. It's fatherly love for you. There's an old hymn that says, that highlights this. Uh, by Augustus Toplady, if thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. He carries no hidden big stick waiting for you to mess up so he can whack you with it. Jesus has borne the penalty fully at the cross for you and he has brought you to God. He may prune you through suffering, but it is not a penalty for your sin. Not only has Jesus conquered the penalty for sin, he has conquered the power of sin in your life. Now, why is that important? It's important because Peter understands, and I think we all understand, that the first temptation that we face when suffering is to return evil for evil, uh, which is why the Bible constantly talks to us about not doing that. <laughs> Don't return evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. Show kindness to those who mistreat you. Pray for your enemies. Love them. Somebody strikes you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. Uh, Jesus models for us and calls us to this ethic of, of love, of selfless love. And we all recognize that we don't do that naturally. And there's something that rises up within us in the midst of suffering, particularly if it's what Peter is describing in these verses of unjust suffering. Somebody's just coming at you, and you're bearing it. He reminds us here that Jesus has, he has uh, removed the power of sin from our lives because he died, and he rose again for us and has rendered it powerless so that we can say no, so that we can say yes to the things that God calls us to do. You won't do it perfectly. In fact, you'll fail often. But he has freed you, and he's given you his Holy Spirit so that we are able by faith to obey what Christ calls us to in this. Jesus serves both as our example in his suffering and his vindication and as the enabler, the one who gives us power to behave, to obey God like this. You can love enemies. You can do good while suffering because you've been loved by a Savior who's done the same in your place. Though he suffered unjustly, God raised him from the dead. And if you're in him by faith, that's your hope as well. 
Notice, not only does Christ deal with the penalty of sin through his substitutionary death in our place, but he also conquers all evil through his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, You probably were scratching your head, as is uh, the right thing to do when we read verses 19 and 20, and probably 21 as well, uh, wondering what in the world is Peter talking about when he talks about Noah, when he talks about Jesus preaching, and who are these spirits in prison, and what is all this about? Here, there's a lot to this, so I'm not going to go into all the details because they would be extremely boring. So here's the main point I think that Peter is getting at. Peter is describing something that Jesus did in between his resurrection and his ascension, or you might say in his ascension back up into heaven after his resurrection. And I think the bottom line that he's describing here is that in his ascension, Jesus proclaims his triumph over evil to evil spirits, to what the Bible calls the cosmic powers of darkness. There's a sense in which we often think of salvation only in individual terms, right? Jesus died to forgive my sins. That's absolutely true. But Jesus' work has cosmic implications as well. He is the Lord of all. And the Bible teaches in lots of different places that one of the things that Jesus did in his death is he rendered powerless Satan and all those who follow him, uh, including demonic forces. And Peter seems to be here indicating that in Jesus' ascension back up into heaven, he proclaimed victory over evil, all evil, all evil powers that may rage against us. We, we sang about this in... Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is why I picked it for the end of the service uh, and not the beginning. Uh, but here's, here's what, what, Paul, uh, what Martin Luther says. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The reality is that in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he's proclaimed that word. He has, as the writer of the Hebrews says, rendered powerless him who holds the power of death. Now, why is Peter saying that to these these people in the first century? I think he's reminding us that behind physical, personal oppression from non-believers against believers, which is what these folks were dealing with, that behind that are often spiritual forces of darkness at work. And Peter's reminding them and us that Jesus has conquered those forces, that they have no ultimate power over those who are in Jesus Christ because he has rendered them powerless through his death and through his resurrection. And so he's calling them to trust that if Jesus has conquered them, they can faithfully endure even under the suffering that they bring. Now, you may still be asking, why is he talking about Noah uh, in this passage? I'm not entirely sure, to be quite frank. But Martin Luther also said this about this passage. A wonderful text is this. In a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. 
Martin Luther was not one to doubt his own certainty or to um, lack certainty in what he believed. But if Luther says that we lack certainty about this passage, then I'm going to jump in with Luther and say, I'm not entirely sure why Peter mentions Noah here. Uh, at the very least, it, it provides an opportunity to him, for him to reference baptism, which now we're going to talk about. <laughs> Y'all, this is a hard passage. I'm just going to let you know that. Peter's reminding us Jesus has removed the penalty for our sin. He has conquered the cosmic powers of darkness through his resurrection and his ascension. And in this reference to baptism, he's reminding us that Christ has claimed us as his people in baptism. And therefore, our lives ought to reflect the work that Jesus has done in us. Notice verse 21. He's, he compares baptism to the waters of the flood through which Noah and his family were saved, even though the waters proved judgment for those who were not saved. It says, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Just a couple of things to point out about uh, this passage. One, to say what it's not saying, which I think is important. When Peter says, baptism now saves you, uh, he does not mean that the act of pouring water on the head, or for some, if, if you, you dunk under the water, he does not mean that that act has saving power. Okay, that's, that's not what he's teaching. That's not consistent with the rest of the New Testament, which talks about salvation through faith alone, without any other works added to it, including baptism. He's talking about baptism as it points to what God does in our lives in salvation, saving us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not an external act. It's an internal act done by God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. But I think the main point Peter's bringing up here, in addition to highlighting what God does for us as symbolized in baptism, He's highlighting our response to what God has done for us in Jesus as it's symbolized in baptism. Notice what he describes there in verse 21, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could translate that as a pledge to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, part of what happens in baptism is that God places his name upon his people. He claims us as his own. He says, you, you belong to me, and then we're called to respond to that with a life of faith, a life that reflects our belief that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. It, it no longer is held against us. That Jesus has rendered powerless the cosmic powers of darkness that are often at work in this world for evil and not for good. And that if his name is placed upon us, then our proper response to that is to pledge our lives to live for him in a way that is consistent with his calling and what he has done for us through the gospel. Jesus in his death has removed the penalty for sin. Jesus in his resurrection and ascension has proclaimed his victory over the powers of darkness and in our baptism, he calls us to pledge our lives to live before him with a good conscience. Now, what does this mean for those of us who follow Jesus? To those of you who are walking uh, with Christ by faith, 
Uh, it's a reminder to us that our lives are meant to be a display of Jesus. And sometimes that means doing good while suffering rather than doing evil, of enduring hardships faithfully, trusting in the one who did the same thing for us, who endured the cross, the ultimate unjust suffering, and yet was vindicated on the third day in his resurrection to give us life and to call us to follow in his footsteps. And your baptism is a reminder to you, you belong to Jesus and he calls you to live for him. What about those who have been baptized but perhaps not yet made a profession of faith, as is often the case uh, in our tradition where we baptize the children of covenant families? I think it's a reminder to you that if you've not yet made a profession of faith in Jesus, a public profession of faith in Jesus, you still have the name of God placed upon you. You still have the promises of God offered to you uh, in the gospel as symbolized by baptism. And Jesus still calls you to embrace those promises for yourself, not to lean upon what your parents believe, not to think that just because they believe it, that that covers you as well, but to consider the claims of Jesus and to embrace him for yourself. If he has claimed you and has offered you his promises in the gospel, he calls you to embrace them for yourself as well. If you've not yet committed yourself to Christ, if you've not yet embraced the good news of the gospel of Christ for you. This passage, I think, uh, urges you to consider uh, some things. First, what do you do with your sin? What, what do you do with the guilt of your sin? And there's lots of options out there, but there's only one that works. There's only one that satisfies guilt before a holy God, and that's to believe that Jesus gave himself for you. When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, it's often easy to think about that just in physical terms, right? That's what we can see. He's nailed to wooden beams. He's uh, held there, an awful death. But what Scripture calls us to consider is that there's a, a deeper reality that's going on in the death of Jesus and to consider that only that reality can deal with the problem of our sin. And the deeper reality is that Jesus in his physical dying becomes sin in our place. And the very prospect of it, uh, one writer says, nearly unmans him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. You remember that scene? As Jesus is praying, his disciples are slumbering, and Jesus is considering what's coming, and he's praying uh, to his father, if this cup can pass, let it pass. And then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. What is Jesus considering? What is it that is causing such immense pressure and stress so that he, you know, he sweats drops of blood because of the anxiety of it? It's not the prospect of his physical death that brings that on him. It's that he knew he would become the very thing his father could not look upon. He knew that he would endure the full, undiluted strength of God's wrath for sin. He would be naked before his father, yet covered with our sin and our shame. And the prospect of that nearly undid him in the garden as he considered it. But he submitted to it. 
He went to the cross. He endured it out of love for you, out of the joy of what lay ahead of him, of bringing his people to himself. He did it willingly to bear your sin, to take it away so that you might be forgiven by a holy God. That is the only way that we can be forgiven for our sins. And to think that there's some other way to be forgiven diminishes what you know to be true about sin and its effects. Jesus gave himself for sinners, freely, willingly, sufficiently, perfectly, and he calls us to trust in him. And as we do, to endure hardships faithfully, looking to the one who did that in our place. Would you pray with me?